Let us pray. Holy and gracious Father, you have a good word for us. And so we ask that you would send your spirit to deliver these words so they might come to us, that we might hear them as gracious words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's nice to be back from vacation. I enjoy going on vacation, and I enjoy even more coming back. It's nice to be with all of you, and it's a blessing. Today is a blessing for me. I almost wish that I'd come back from vacation on a Sunday just so I could be with all of you, first and foremost, instead of on a Monday and then have to wait the whole week. But I must say, I, must, I have a confession to make, and that's if I knew that when I was returning from vacation I had to preach on Matthew 18, I probably would have stayed an extra week on vacation just to miss this passage. This passage is a, a difficult passage. It's not difficult to understand, but, but actually following it and doing this in a gracious manner, how to, to go to another brother who's in sin and, and speaking to that brother, that's not easy. And even more, the church, the Christian church on earth, does a terrible job of following these words. And many of you might have had, tried to live out these words, to go to someone, and you, you made a mess of it. Or someone has come to you and tried to, you know, restore you, and they made a mess out of it. These words are terribly difficult. I remember at seminary, I had a classmate who loved confrontation. If, his mod, he, if he had one verse memorized, it was, it was this section from Matthew 18. And it seems that his whole sole purpose in life was to serve as a warning to others. And you know the type of person. You know, the type of person who has only one tool in the toolbox, and it's a hammer, and everything he sees seems to look like a nail? You know, this type of person who just wants to pound you and pound you and pound you and make sure you're walking the straight and narrow. You know this type of person. Well, this guy was relentless at seminary. He made sure to point out all of our faults, and he would go to us one by one and share with us our faults. I'm convinced to this day that he had a list. And every time he saw something, he wrote it down. And then once he talked to us, he checked us off the list. And then he'd put us on again and go to us. And even more, when he'd come to us, he'd always begin by saying Matthew 18. He'd, he'd pull out his Bible, and Matthew 18 tells us, if a brother has sin, I better go to you, and so I'm going to you, and here are your sins. I'm not kidding. He did this a lot. Well, one day, one of my friends, and I did not number this man as a friend, but one of my friends stood up to him, and I think he just lost it. And in front of all of us, in the, the dining commons, he said, Matthew 18 is not meant to be a sword to cut people's heads off. And then he said, Matthew 18 is meant to be a scalpel used delicately used with precision in order to bring healing. And so don't throw Matthew 18 in our faces because you're not using it right. I couldn't believe it. I wish I would have thought of that, you know? The key issue in our passage from Matthew 18, it's not discipline at all. This passage is about caring for the little ones in the church. And I say that because at the very beginning of Matthew, chapter 18, 
the question that's asked, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask the question, Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, it's just like those disciples to ask that question, right? I mean, if you ever want to look good in your life, just compare yourself to the disciples because they'll make you look really good. I mean, think of it. They walk with Jesus. Jesus says something, and they totally mess it up. And then they're amongst each other, and they say, who's the greatest, Jesus? Or they're like Peter and deny Jesus three times. And if you ever want to look good, compare yourself to the disciples. But at this point, they're asking Jesus, which one's the greatest? And I'm convinced, the bishop, or I'm convinced that these disciples were the first pastors and bishops of the church. Because that's what pastors and bishops do. They go to gatherings and they begin talking to each other and they say, like, well, how big's your church? How much is your church giving? How big's your confirmation cost? I mean, it's terrible. I, I put on a blog somewhere that I said, an interesting fact about me is I don't like pastors. So I don't like myself half the time, but that's another story. No one's laughing. Okay. <laughs> but these disciples. Which one's the greatest? How do you be great in the kingdom of God? And Jesus' reply is so interesting. He says in verse 2, he says, he, it says, He called a little child and had him stand among them. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So how do you be great in the kingdom of heaven? You become a little child. But there's more than just that because the, in verse 5, Greatness in the kingdom looks like welcoming the little children. Listen to verse 5. It says, and whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. And then later in verse 10, Jesus says, see that you do not look down on one of these little ones, little children. Or then in verse 14, what does greatness in the kingdom look like? Verse 14 says, in the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones, these little children, should be lost. And then the section about when a brother sins, this is about restoring a brother. And then afterwards, it's about forgiving the little ones. In other words, what does greatness look like in the kingdom of heaven? Greatness looks like being a little one, a little child, a little child of faith. It's, it's restoring a child in faith. It's forgiving one another. It's restoring. It's, it's welcoming them. It's receiving them. That's what greatness looks like in the kingdom of heaven. I think my classmate was right when he said, Matthew 18 is not meant to be a sword, but a scalpel. Because what it's talking about is a community gathering together of believers, gathering to help each other out and to help restore one another when you fall into sin, knowing <laughs> that the person next to you is a sinner too. Now, this shouldn't surprise anyone. The church is, is not a shrine for saints. The church is a hospital for, for sinners. The church is made up of, of all kinds of people with all kinds of problems. I mean, you've heard that saying, what should you do if you find the perfect church? Don't join it. It will no longer be perfect. Right? I mean, I mean, the point is, though, of this is that we're all sinners. G.K. Chesterton was asked the question, what's wrong with the world? There's an editorial. And his reply is, I am. Signed, G.K. Chesterton. 
I'm what's wrong. We are all sinners. I hate to break it to you this morning. For all of you who walked in thinking you're great, I'm sorry, you're a sinner. And so am I. And that's what Jesus is after. He's speaking to a community of believers, but who are sinners. And he's speaking about how we are to care for one another and how we are to restore one another, how we are to forgive one another. This is a gentle passage that Jesus is doing, speaking. He's speaking in a gentle way. In fact, that's why we begin our service every Sunday with confession. Why? The first thing we do, we stand up and we confess our sins to God and we're also declaring to one another that we're all sinners. I mean, have you ever sat there and you pray and you go, God, I'm so sorry, for, and you have the whole checklist in your head? Well, guess what? The person next to you is doing the same thing. And the person behind you and before, they're doing the same thing. We are sinners. The church is not a shrine for saints. The church is a hospital for sinners. Together we say, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have, have mercy on us. There's an old hymn that says, there, and this came from the Reformation time. It says, theirs was a false misleading dream who thought God's law was given that sinners might themselves redeem and by their works gain heaven. No, the law is but a mirror bright to bring the inbred sin to light that lurks within our nature, our nature. In other words, we're sinners. You are sinners. I, the pastor of the church, am a sinner. The church is not a museum, a shrine for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. Now, because it's a hospital, because we know we're all sinners, does this mean now we shouldn't say anything? Or now we shouldn't do anything? No. No, a hospital is a place for healing. Hospital is a place where we are to be healed and to be instruments of healing for each other. In fact, that's what Jesus is speaking about in verse 18 when he says, I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In other words, what you do here and now as you're working together, as you're restoring one another, actually has consequences later you know you drive someone away from the faith you drive someone away from the church you drive someone away from belief in other words he says don't do that because you might just drive someone away from the kingdom instead we are to restore and to to loosen of sins and to to bring people and restore them in the faith and I like in this verse, verse 18, if you notice, he says, I tell you the truth. That's a plural, you. He's not simply speaking to Peter in this verse. And he's not simply speaking to pastors in this verse. He's speaking to the larger community. He's speaking to all of you here and all those who've gone before and after and the, and the church down the road. He's speaking to all of us. He's saying we're called to be an instrument of healing, of, of restoring one another. 
Now, in my own life, when I first became a Christian, there's a, a woman in my home church named Lou Page. And she's sent, she's, she's gone on to be with the Lord. But Lou Page was a saint of a woman. I loved her. And I, I remember uh, one, when I was young, I was young, I was 17, I shaved my head to, you know, that's what 17-year-olds do. And I went to church one Sunday, and I thought I was going to shock some of the older people in the church. And Lou Page came up to me, and she grabbed my cheek, and she said, oh, you look so cute, Russ. <laughs> that's not the effect that I wanted. But Lou was, a, Lou was a woman who would challenge me, who would pray for me, who would encourage me. She was a wonderful woman. I remember one Sunday when I had done something foolish the night before, and I was still new in my faith, and I thought, you know, I shouldn't go to church. I've done too many bad things, and last night was terrible. And I was so tempted to turn around. I was, I was going to leave. I wasn't going to go to church. I, I just thought they wouldn't welcome me into this place, you know, if they knew what I did on Saturday. So I walked in, and, and of all people, the first person I saw was Lou Page. I didn't know what she was going to say to me. And she could tell, just looking at me, that my countenance had, had fallen. I mean, you know, I was just, I didn't want to even look at her in the eyes. And what she did next, I'll never forget. She, she came up to me, and she didn't say a word. She put her arms around me and gave me a kiss on the cheek. And she said, Russ, God loves you and so do I. And that's it. Nothing more. Made sure I went in. She restored me right then and there, right on the spot, with grace and mercy. She didn't even want to know what I did the night before, and I'm glad. I needed care. I needed restoration. I didn't need a rod on that day. I needed a staff. And she brought me in, restored me right then on the spot. That's what Jesus is after in these words about when a brother sins. He's not saying, take your sword and point it at the person. Just take that scalpel. Cut out what needs to be cut out. Restore them. Restore them. Loosen them. Or if they're injured, bind them, wrap them. Because it, it, it impacts all eternity. And would I be a pastor today if, if Lou hadn't welcomed me, if she drove me off? I don't know. Glad she didn't. This is what the church is supposed to do. This is what a community of believers are supposed to do. This is what Jesus did. Matthew 18, the question is, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know, those who take care of the little ones. Well, who is this question? Who's, what's the answer? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's Jesus, right? Look at how Jesus fulfilled these words. Jesus became a little child born in Bethlehem. Jesus was willing to welcome the little ones. 
Let them come unto me. He's even willing to welcome sinners and tax collectors. Jesus left the 99 sheep to go after the lost one. Jesus was willing to speak the truth to the religious leaders, even if that cost him his life. And then on the cross, it was Jesus who was able to forgive not 70 times 7, but 7 billion times 7 billion, infinity amount, as on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who is the greatest in heaven? It's Jesus. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus does. And Jesus' love doesn't stop 2,000 years ago. It continues even to this day as Jesus enters into bread and wine for you, for the forgiveness of sins. And it continues this day when, when we sing hymns and, and Christ is present. And it continues even when Christians are disputing one another and fighting with one another. Jesus promises that when two or more gather in my name, gather to extend grace and forgiveness to each other, Christ is present in the midst of that dispute to bring restoration to you. God, Emmanuel, God with us. Reformation on this day. Be great in the kingdom of God. Become little children and welcome other little children and seek the one who is lost and restore that one and restore one another and forgive, <laughs> forgive as you've been forgiven. In all these things, Jesus promises to be with you. Emmanuel, God with us. In Jesus' name, amen.